This week on Life and Faith. We don't really know where consciousness arises from, and there's certainly nothing in, I don't think, in the current ways that we are creating artificial intelligence that would, from first principles, give rise to consciousness from these digital intelligences. If there is not accountability in that system, it will get bent into exploitation. You never used to have to think about those things. You do you, your best self. All ethics is fluid and relative. We're actually stronger than we think we are. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. And welcome back after a couple of weeks break. And I'm talking to everyone here, not just Al, who's returned from long service leave. No, no, it's great to be back and looking forward to another season of Life and Faith. So would you want to live forever without pain, death, or dying and be freed from all limits. That sounds pretty good. But the only catch is you'd have to leave behind your body and the physical world with it. Which begs the question, what would that mean? Would you no longer be human? Or can all our human life and the human be upgraded or uploaded perhaps? Well, this is the thought experiment behind Grace Chan's novel, Every Version of You. And it might sound familiar to you if you've tuned into Life and Faith and listened to the latest Seen and Heard episode, because we talked about books and TV shows and movies that explore our hopes and dreams about technology. And Justin, you discussed this novel in that episode. Yeah, I brought every version of you to the table. I thought it was a really provocative, uh, and it raises all sorts of really interesting questions. And for me, foremost, does the body make us human? So I was really excited to interview Grace. And... Her novel and our chat, it turns out, grapples with these big ideas, right? What does it mean to live in a body? What does it mean to be a self? And I know in putting it in those terms, it sounds really kind of abstract and philosophical, but I really think she does a great job in helping flesh out (laughs) these ideas um, in terms of the characters and the lives that they lead, uh, which feel very similar to our own, even if they take place in a speculative future. And this book really seems to have struck a nerve. Uh, It just won the People's Choice Award at the 2023 New South Wales Premier's Literary Award. And it also explains why people are looking at this book in book clubs and then you know, are utterly kind of like bewildered. It is. It's messing with their heads. And let me say, it feels really kind of spooky in a way because it taps into all our collective, you know, angst about technology changing us and and what we think Mm. the human is. And I have to say, when we're recording this in mid-2023, we've just seen all these headlines about, you know, wildfires in Canada, heat waves in Europe, China and other places logging 52 degrees Celsius. Her vision of this climate-ravaged Australia feels, I'm quite afraid, quite literally. It's a bit too real. Yeah, it's a speculative novel about the near future. It's 60 years time and Australia isn't a pleasant place to live. No. So Melbourne's Yarra River no longer exists. It's been dried up. If you see wildlife, like a possum, that's like a... huge thing. You would you would Instagram it sort yeah. of thing. Um, if you go outside, you've got to wear this incredibly bulky clothing to protect you from the radiation and you have to wear air filtration masks because 
I suppose the kind of orangey skies that we saw in the Black Summer bushfires is sort of normal at that point. Yeah. And you're not supposed to go outside between 11 and 3. Can you imagine? Like, this is the kind of, like, life that she's putting forward. So this whole, like, sunburnt country business is is out of control as far as I'm concerned. And the breakdown of this natural world means that how we live our lives now uh, and what we take for granted, really, is no longer possible. And so what happens in her novel is that they develop this technology that can upload you to a digital existence. And that's where most of social life takes place nowadays. But then the option becomes available that you can become permanently uploaded. And so it's like, what do you do? Now you've got a new world on offer in a digital existence. What happens now? Would you actually opt for that yourself? And it's a non bodily existence. That's right. Mm, That sounds fascinating. So would you upload to an entirely digital existence in those circumstances? Here's novelist Grace Chan telling Justine how she began imagining the future in her novel, Every Version of You. I suppose the core of my novel started from the idea of uploading a mind into virtual reality. That was the seed of the idea that the novel grew around. So it had to be set in the future. (laughs) And I had to sort of pick a time to set the novel in. And initially, I wrote the novel set much later in the future. I set it in the late 22nd century. But as I was writing um, the novel, I realized that the anxieties and the concerns felt very relevant to today. So Mm. quite early on in the process of writing the book, I moved it to the late 21st century. So it's set in, starts off in about 2080. So it's really only less than 60 years from today. And the world building was a process that took time um, building the sort of the physical world of the late 21st century, what Australia might look like, what Melbourne might look like um, when climate change and natural disasters and bushfires have rendered the landscape quite desolate, um, unchecked sort of urbanisation and class divisions and uh, inequalities of wealth, I think, have sort of stratified society and led to the physical world being quite and not a very nice place to live in. Um, And so many people have, I suppose, psychologically fled into a virtual landscape. People are spending most of their time in this virtual reality world that on the surface seems very shiny and very pleasant and gratifies all their daily needs. (laughs) Well, this becomes the dilemma of the book. You know, do you upload or do you not upload, especially when you're living in a desolate landscape of Australia in the 2080s, or you can go to a digital paradise, basically. And I suppose, especially for the character of Navin, who's Tao Yi's boyfriend, Tao Yi's the main character, the promise of no more frailty is very compelling for him. Um, Can you give us a glimpse of what kind of life the uploaded can live? Yeah, so at the start of the novel, um, we see through the main characters, Tao Yi and Naveen, that most of their lives are already in this digital paradise. Um, so they spend almost all of their waking and sometimes their sleeping hours immersed in these uh, pods that take care of their physical bodies or the, the natural functions of your physical bodies so that your mind can be plugged into this this very expansive, immersive virtual world where everything in in society sort of happens there now. Um, They go to work there, they meet their friends there, they go out to clubs and bars, they go to art installations, they go out to eat at 
restaurants and roadside stalls that are all digital, they're all virtual. And so sort of a third of the way through the book, a new technology is introduced and this technology really shakes up everyone and everything. Um, it's a technology to essentially replicate or upload a human mind to permanently reside in this digital utopia that they've created for humanity. And it forces everyone to sort of grapple with, would you choose to permanently reside in this virtual world and relinquish your physical body? And what would that mean for who you are as a person and how you relate to other people, and the important people in your life? Um, who, who are you without a body? And so many, I think so many questions that I, I don't think can even be, certainly can't be encompassed in one little book. <laughs> oh, I, think I think you do a pretty good job. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I think what's really exciting is like things like hearing people picking up this book for book club reads and sort of, <laughs> I've heard a lot of people say that it burrows into their brain and yeah, they think yeah. about it for a few weeks afterwards and, you know, debate with their families over dinner about whether they would upload. <laughs> yeah, I think it forces people to grapple with what's important to them. I wonder if you could tell us something about what gets lost in the uploading as well, because Taoyi feels really split between like she loves Naveen, sorry, I mispronounced his name before, um, but she also feels incredibly planted and rooted. And I'm just conscious of the words I'm using because these are all metaphors that rely upon a physical body. She feels very planted and rooted in, on this earth. So yeah, what is at stake with the upload? What gets lost? Yeah, I think that's such an interesting and um, big question. I, I certainly wanted, didn't want to be prescriptive in my writing. Uh, I wasn't sort of saying that this is the right way to go about it, this is the wrong way to think about technology, or technology is terrible and it's going to you know, ruin us or um, it's not going to be a good thing for humans overall. I, I didn't want to be prescriptive in my writing. I wanted to open up a space for conversation and for reflection and questioning and thought. And I think I wanted to show this through the different characters that I, I write about in my novel. So Taoyi and Naveen and their friends, they all respond to technology in quite different ways. For example, Naveen kind of takes to new environments very easily, he, uh, and that speaks to his, his own heritage as a mixed ethnicity person who has lived in various countries and tends to embrace that sort of um, hybrid personality and embraces change and um, each new iteration of himself as he moves into different contexts. So what is lost in the upload, I think, is probably a really different question for each person. Um, Naveen feels that he gains something in the virtual environment, whereas Tao Yi's character, her response to the virtual environment and to uploading is quite different, and we inhabit her viewpoint for much of the novel. Through her viewpoint, I think we feel, yeah, some of those things that certainly would change and perhaps be lost when we move into digital spaces. One thing, of course, is um, our connection to our physical bodies. <laughs> and I think that is something that certainly does change when we move into digital spaces. And it doesn't need to be something as dramatic as uploading your mind into the cloud. I think already the way that we 
spend a lot of time using technology and presenting ourselves in digital spaces has already changed our connection to our bodies mm. and our, of ourselves. I was writing this book as I was training in psychiatry and I was thinking a lot about that mind-body connection all the time. I was thinking about it a lot in my work and as I was writing this book. So I was thinking a lot about how our bodies are really integral in terms of how we form our concepts of ourselves and even going back to when we are babies, you know, psychoanalytic theories talk about how we learn our, the boundaries of ourselves through that sort of physical feedback that we get from our primary caregiver mm. environments. And it's through that initial feedback when we're infants, before we're even verbal, that we realise that we have a boundary, we have a skin, this is where I end and this is where my caregiver starts. And once we learn we have a physical boundary, that sort of also um, gives us a sense of our psychological boundary as well. So this is myself, there is self, there is other. And so I feel that mind and body are so intricately interwoven in terms of how we develop as people. So inevitably, as we move more into digital spaces, that relationship between the mind and body is going to change. And it is, you know, children who grow up more plugged into the digital world are probably going to have different conceptions of themselves. And even thinking of us as adults and how we interact with technology in our adult lives, we spend so much time staring at a screen and we often forget about our bodies and we, we neglect our bodies. And you just think about when you're watching TV for hours on end, you kind of forget that you have a body and you forget to look after your body. <laughs> There's a passing reference in the novel to sex being infinitely better in Gaia. And I guess most people <laughs> would believe that the body, at least one body, is pretty crucial to sex. So can I ask you more about that human body part of being human? Is it absolutely essential or do you think that you can kind of disconnect mind from body as is explored in the novel? Great question. So I think it was one character who made that comment that sex is better in Gaia. Evelyn. Yeah, Evelyn. <laughs> Great memory, Justine. <laughs> um, and Tao Yi, when she hears that comment, she absolutely disagrees because her physical experience of Gaia is like everything happens through plastic or it feels like it's lost the textures of reality. Yeah. Tao Yi enjoys the imperfections of reality or the sort of sensations that add texture and add um, imperfections and make it feel more interesting and more real. Whereas Evelyn, I think, and, and maybe Zach, um, another character, in some ways they chase the possibilities that the virtual world opens up in terms of new experiences and new ways of finding pleasure and enjoyment and art. So I guess I wanted to present both sides of the coin. My own personal perspective, and I think, you know, the book opens it up to your own response, but I do feel, as I said before, that the mind and the body are intricately connected in terms of how we how we develop and how we form a sense of self and form a sense of being human. And so if we discard the body, I think that is inevitably going to change what we look like as people. So there is a sense in the later part of the novel that the uploaded people are going to be very different in terms of how they think, how they behave, how they see the world. So... Whether or not they are still human is a question for readers to answer. 
You're listening to Life and Faith, and this is Justine's interview with author and, as it turns out, psychiatrist Grace Chan about her novel, Every Version of You. And we're deep in the thick of it now. Is the body a necessary part of what makes us human? And the talk turns now to the self. Is it real or is it a story we tell ourselves? And are we the same person through our lives or different versions of ourselves depending on the situation? This is a question that I've thought of a lot, Justine. All right. Okay, good. So it's not just me. (laughs) I thought this was a really important question to get into. So I asked Grace about themes of migration. And Mm. I know that sounds a bit strange, but she's written elsewhere about this topic. And I felt like this novel was speculating in some ways about the ultimate migration, right? So the embodied human experience to an entirely digital and disembodied existence. And so you've got characters like Tao Yi, the main character. She feels split between the digital world and this world. So I was wondering, does this capture something about the migrant experience? You know, not necessarily migrating worlds, but even just countries. I love that you compared the digital uploading to uh, it it is essentially a a huge migration um, from the physical world into the virtual world. I guess, you know, I didn't consciously intend to write a story focused on the themes of migration and belonging, but I think inevitably that some of those themes would have bled into the novel because of my own and my family's history of migration. We are Chinese-Malaysian diaspora. So the characters that I wanted to write about, I wanted them to present this sort of, like they have hybrid identities, but it's not something, I didn't want to make it like something that they were lacking. It's not like they're constantly searching for a place to belong. It's more that these characters, Taoyi, Naveen, Evelyn and Zach, they feel quite at home in the different environments that they live in whether they're virtual environments, physical environments, different countries, different places. But there is a sense of just holding various different identities together. And I think that's something that's quite familiar to people who sit across multiple cultures and multiple contexts. You are sort of a different self, perhaps when you're with your relatives in your yeah. country, yeah. the country that your parents um, uh, were born in. Um, or a country that perhaps, you know, you were born in, but you have very little actual ties with or memory of. And you're a different person when you're with your friends. You're, you present a different self when you're in a context where you're a minority and you're not seen as a very important person in the room and you've got to kind of present a different side of yourself to be heard, to be accepted, to be seen. So I think that is something that, perhaps bled into the novel and the characters that we are a lot of different selves and kind of stitched together into, you know, we, we hold a lot of different selves together. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask more about the self because you've just talked about the many selves that we present. If we kind of peel back the layers, is there an actual self there? Is there, is there some sort of real grace, for example, or is it a story we tell ourselves? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another fascinating question. Um, I guess one thing that I was trying to explore in this novel was the idea of a self-narrative. And and the other major theme that I'm exploring in this novel is the idea of change and the transience of all things, including the various selves that we are throughout our lives. And also the way that our relationships are never quite the same as they were in the past. So mm. 
um, all our relationships with the important people in our lives, significant others, children, parents, they're, they're constantly in flux. And the way that it is at one stage is different. It's constantly changing. And I do feel that we have quite different selves throughout our lives. And I think that sense of narrative identity, the story that we tell ourselves about our own history and our own story is a big part of how we shape ourselves as individuals. And we're constantly being changed by the experiences that we have. And so that story that we tell ourselves about who we are really holds ourselves together as people and gives us a sense of who we are. Is it a real story? I guess I want to say, like, I mean, it feels real to me, the story I tell about myself, but how do I know I've got the full story? Do you know what I mean? Like that, that's just a really, it's a very provocative thing to think. I mean, I, I suppose Christians would say that even if we aren't fully known to ourselves, we are known by God. So it's like there is a keeper of the story, capital T, capital S, and we can kind of grope at it, but maybe we don't have the fullness. And I'm just curious as to what you think about that. Um, I feel like I'm someone who sits very much in the subjective and the ambiguous. So I feel like the the truth or the story that you tell yourself is maybe it is very difficult to find any sort of objective truth about who you are and and call that the truth above all truths. <laughs> so I think that the story that we tell ourselves is our own subjective truth. And it's an important thing because it kind of frames your own history and your own identity and also shapes your, your direction and your actions into the future. Um, I think it's also a very empowering thing because it means that you can sort of change the narrative that you tell yourself as well and change your concept of who you are. And that can, it gives you a sort of a little bit of a sense of empowerment. You can sort of take a little bit of control, I think, over how you see yourself uh, in the past and also going into the future. Let's move to the relationships between Gaia, which is the digital utopia, and kind of heaven in a way. Like you do make that association throughout the book. There's so many Christian themes and symbols that are haunting your novel. We hear that Naveen considers uploading his salvation. People in Gaia are immortal and ageless. There's no more poverty, crime, death. It's basically heaven, but without God. So give us an insight into how did that part of the novel come about? That's such an interesting reading of the novel, Justine. Um, And I'm so curious to hear you describe some of the Christian themes, imagery and symbolism that emerged for you when you read it. I didn't consciously write Christian themes or symbolism into every version of you, but interestingly, I was actually raised in an evangelical Christian family and I spent my childhood and adolescent years in the church. So I wouldn't be surprised. I think a lot of my writing comes from explorations of my own subconscious (laughs) and perhaps some of that bled into the novel as well. It's interesting to think about the character's relationship to digital environments from a religious standpoint. And it makes me think about what is it that draws people towards religion? What does religion provide for people? And maybe what is it that the virtual environment provides for people that is similar to religion? So reflecting on my own experience, I suppose people might be drawn to religion for a whole range of reasons, perhaps to feel known, to feel loved, to feel absolved and forgiven, to have sort of shame and sin taken away, to feel connected to other people and to feel like part of something that is broader than them, that is bigger than them, that has a purpose and a meaning. 
And I think that maybe the digital environment fulfills some of those on the surface or maybe come some way towards meeting those things, but maybe not at a deeper level. So there are algorithms and programs that, you know, proclaim to know you and know your interests, find your perfect partner, find the perfect um, work for you, design how you look in the virtual world. So there's a sense that um, their technologies can know you better than you know yourself. And I guess thinking about technology now, um, people sort of seek connection through technology, but I'm not sure if it provides the deeper level of connection that is really important to meaningful human connection. So I guess the other thing I'm thinking about when you talk about religion is people um, are looking for some way to feel empowered and to feel like they have agency in the world. And so in every version of you, people upload and they become immortal. <laughs> so I'm wondering if there's a bit of a parallel there. It's like there's a future to where you're you're safe, you know, you're not going to die, death and pain are gone. Um, it's it's a place where you don't have to grapple with the suffering. That's yeah. an interesting parallel to think about. It is really. And maybe you remember this from your childhood, but like the idea that Jesus being resurrected in a physical form, not in a digital or not in a virtual, he's not just a ghost sort of thing. And that kind of projects forward a physical, I guess, resurrection, a physical heaven. Given what Grace had earlier said about the caregiver-baby bond being key to how to develop a sense of self, Justine then asked Grace if her perspective on the novel's themes had changed since becoming a mother. In several scenes in the book, Taoyi and Naveen, discuss whether or not they want to have children and there's the ethical kind of considerations of the decision of having children in a world that is ravaged by environmental collapse and then when the uploading technology happens it's like what happens to children like how are they raised are they raised in the virtual world are they raised in the physical world and that was part of the difficult world building stuff for me too because when I wrote about uploading it forced me to think about oh my gosh like it's such a complex question um I don't think having a kid has yet changed my perspective in this book I feel like what I've written about is still what I would write about now yeah 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 <laughs> I just it was just a curious line that I don't know I don't know who said it but it was something like having children is still the only way to birth human consciousness so it was just fascinating because it was like the idea of consciousness, where does it come from? How do we, we can't make it, right? Like, is it, is it entirely something that just happens or is it, is it basically like a soul in a weird way? And I, I was just curious that in this future, you can still only get a human consciousness through actual humans, you know? So it was, yeah. it was an interesting question to think about. Are there some hard limits to reality, I suppose, that we can't entirely get rid of, even if there's this post-human option that wants to take us beyond the human? I think consciousness is always such a fascinating question, isn't it? Like we still understand so little about it. And despite, you know, we're sort of in the age of rising AI now, and we have digital intelligences starting to encroach upon um, our intelligence and supersede us in many ways. But I think our understandings of consciousness are still pretty blurry. <laughs> we don't really know where consciousness arises from and we don't know how or when 
there's certainly nothing in, I don't think, in the current ways that we are creating artificial intelligence that would, from first principles, give rise to consciousness from these digital intelligences. So it's still a big black box. And I think we do have a long way to go before we understand how or where consciousness might arise. I found, um, well, I found that I want to be a left behind nobody when I grow up. (laughs) These are the people in your novel who don't want to upload, basically. And if I want to be a left behind nobody and I want that as my eulogy, right, (laughs) what do I need to do now? What, What possibilities of resistance open up in the now so that I don't have to upload? Oh, I think there's a lot of things. I think the first step and, you know, fiction can only do so much. Like reading a book and writing a book is just, it's fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and it it's sort of one way for me to, I think, articulate some of the anxieties or concerns that we have today around technology. And I guess one of the things that I was grappling with was that technology is changing so rapidly, you know, in a short space of time. In the few decades of my own life, I've seen technology advance so rapidly from mobile phones to the internet, blah, blah, blah. And I think what I feel is that we often accept advancing technology without thinking much about how it changes us and how it changes our relationships with people. Or we choose convenience over uh, or pleasure over anything else. I'm just thinking about something as simple as using Facebook, you know. We all use Facebook. I use Facebook. And even though I hate using Facebook sometimes, <laughs> I still use it. I still sell my my personal information online for free to these horrible corporations. <laughs> Be, why? Because I want to stay in touch and it's convenient to stay in touch with certain people through Facebook. And so I think awareness of the trades that we are making is the first step. And I think, you know, you can go and read much more um, informed books about, you know, what you're actually doing and kind of how technology does impact on our privacy and on things like surveillance and kind of the corporations behind technology and just be more aware of like what is happening in, in terms of what happens when you use technology. I think it's also important to be aware of the systemic biases and the faults in our technology. I think when technology is advancing so rapidly and the main drivers of it are corporations wanting to make money, it's a worrying sort of melting pot. Um, I think that these technologies are changing so rapidly and um, if we don't look at, you know, what kind of biases they are perpetuating, it could amplify many of the existing systemic and social biases that we already have in our society. So... It's a big question that I think takes a collective kind of social awareness and consciousness to go, we want better from our technology. Like we want it to not perpetuate the problems that we already have in society, but to move in a better direction and um, reduce inequality and not perpetuate the problems that we already have.
You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe. Yeah, and thanks so much to Grace Chan for such a stimulating chat. You know, like if this book is breaking people's brains, it broke mine as well. (laughs) Her book is Every Version of You. I'm going to post links to Grace's social media and also the Seen and Heard episode where we talked about this novel. Um, I'll also post the article that I wrote for the CPX website about this book. Yeah, please do share this conversation with anyone you think might get something from it. And in a return to life and faith after a short break, it would be remiss of me not to thank our producer, the multi-talented Alan Douthwaite. Next week. I do not fear death in any way based on my experience, not even in the slightest. But the problem is the people you leave behind. That's the issue. And also, you know, the least painful way to the grave would also be nice.